Today's story is about Katerina and her family waking up to war in the city center of Chernihiv, Ukraine. As we're discussing war and everything that comes with it, today's conversation is inappropriate for kids. Katerina and her husband, Sasha, have two little girls, Leah, who is two, and Leona, who is six months old. Katerina's recording this conversation in a remote part of Ukraine where they fled. And at times, the internet is spotty, and you'll hear Leah and Leona in the background. Katerina is a former English teacher, now stay-at-home mom, who has been documenting the war on her Facebook page, A Ukrainian Mother's Story. Her husband owns a factory in Chernihiv that builds and installs ventilation and air supply systems. This story is close to my heart. The entire reason for me starting this podcast is to support and encourage moms. I am asking you to provide some type of support and encouragement for Katerina. She really, really needs your support. You can go to her Facebook page and leave an encouraging note. I'll leave a link in the show notes. And you can also donate directly to her and her family. If you message her from her page, she can get you the details for her PayPal account. Right now, her family is living in survival mode and they have been for six months. Survival mode in every sense of the word. In today's story, you will follow Katerina and her family as they flee the city center of Chernihiv to where they are now. You'll also hear about how she navigated relationships with family and friends very close to her that live in Russia. And towards the end of the episode, she wrote out what she would want to say to the mother of a Russian soldier if she got the chance. And finally, you'll get a quick update of where her and her family are now. Now let's hear from Katerina. It's the morning of February 24th, 2022, when Katerina hears the first sounds of war. Seven in the morning was the first time when I just woke up in bed with my children on either side of me and my husband was getting ready and I just heard something loud outside. And I thought that couldn't be some kind of firecracker or like some random sound that must be something more serious than that. So I asked my husband, did he hear that? And he said, yes. And then he just said, well, that's probably war starting. Her husband, Sasha, was supposed to leave that day for Kiev for a work trip, which is about two and a half to three hours away from Chernihiv. And I asked him, well, are you going to Kiev? And he said, I think I shouldn't. And he spoke to his business partner and he said he also heard something and he lived in a different side of the city. And that meant, well, that something was bigger than we even allowed ourselves to think, to assume. They feel a little bit confused at this point, and so they start trying to get more information. With 
that happening, we turned on the TV to check maybe there were some news reports. That's when we discovered that at 5 in the morning there was a full-scale invasion of Russia. On the whole eastern side, everywhere where Russia and Ukraine share the same border. And since then, our TV was on all day long. We were so scared for what's going on that, well, we just wanted to understand how bad it is and how bad it's going to be. Initially, Katerina and her husband didn't think Russia had any reason to target the city center of Chernihiv where they lived. We were convinced that they don't need cities, they just need to uh, take over the military uh, objects and just to go to Kiev and have their thing done or whatever. Because since there was this pretext that Putin wanted to bring peace or <laughs> call it Russian peace, um, they would probably need some people to vote or choose that peace. As it turns out, they never needed the people. Then came the airstrikes. And then a lot of bombing started to happen, a lot of airstrikes. When I heard the air siren for the first time, it wasn't so often in the beginning. When I heard the air siren, these airstrike sirens, I was looking like at my husband and like, what should we do now? I wasn't like in any drill before this and I, for who is this? Is this for the military? Is it for, for me? Is it for some, I don't city mayor or some firemen or what's happening? My husband wouldn't know the same. He has no training like that. And he's just a simple civilian doing his, his thing. He's just, you know, supporting his family. In a matter of days, she went from living her everyday life with her two kids and her husband to being in the center of a war zone where bombing raids were happening all around her and her family. She says there was a certain smell after the bombardments hit. And her two-year-old daughter, Leah, learned to say the word bomb and run into the corner of their apartment. The whole building is vibrating and you're looking at the uh, lights in your apartment and you see how it's like, it's like vibrating like in an earthquake. And that's because something is flying by. It hasn't even fallen yet. Then there comes the smell of them. There was a smell, a smell of shelling. So just imagine the place where it falls. That's the pictures from the internet. This is what it looks like after it falls. And this was, they were wallpapers. They were a couch, a TV set, uh, a coffee table, a, 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 a stroller, kids' toys. They were there. A bathroom, a kitchen, not some kind of, military object that presents some horrible danger to this Russian army. It's just a regular apartment block. Katerina has a brother. He decided to take his wife, one-year-old daughter, and six-year-old son to a bomb shelter to try to protect them. 
So I called my brother probably the third or the fourth day. We lived really close to each other. And he said that his youngest got a rotavirus in a bomb shelter. And uh, she was really bad. And then this rotavirus went to everyone in his family. So they were all sick. The following day, Katerina just knew it was time to go. The next day, my brother asked me if we were going to stay in the apartment in the city center. It's hard to describe this feeling. It's like something broke. Like coldness and such a very sharp, tight knot like somewhere like in my stomach somewhere here and like in my chest and I was looking at my children and I knew that we have to start running the first stop on their way of escaping the city center was at Katerina's in-law's house luckily we had the in-law's uh, my my husband's parents who lived like in a like dull like very depressive area of, of the town it's a very boring place so like barely like a car drives even there it's like to the outskirts there's uh, lots of trees and it's like a forest area we decided to go there and they also live in, um, in their own house so uh, they're quite independent of the neighbors. We decided that, for example, if a building is bombed and should it like fold in on itself, it would just probably bury floor by floor and just people would just die in the wreckage or would just get stuck there and they would have to be taken out or whatever. So we decided that like staying like in a house that, that consists of one floor is a bit safer. They packed up that night with the lights out and the curtains drawn. We started back in maybe around five in the evening and that was already dark. And because we are supposed to keep our windows blacked out just to not to give away uh, like where humans are, like where people live, right? Just not to attract any airstrikes anymore. We used flashlights like phone torches. I prioritized of course kids stuff and food first of all like bedding, some blankets and pillows because I didn't know where we would end up. Maybe we would have to spend a night somewhere in the cellar or I don't know where just I wanted to provide comfort for children, first of all. So I just tried to get as much stuff that would provide them any protection or cover or comfort that I could think of. And food. Luckily, we had some food stocked up. I would always stock up extra in all senses, like formula, diapers, some clothes, something extra, some grains, cereals, cheese, milk, uh, formula, like anything. Just I would just stock up 
just to have extra, just in case. And I've always been like this. And I never knew why, but now it all makes sense. They didn't know how long they'd have to leave their apartment, but her husband was still hopeful that they'd be able to return home soon. And my my husband said, well, I hope we just come back like in a couple of days. So just in case we filled in a lot of water bottles and bathtub with water because we were already warned that there could be no water at some point. And uh, we grabbed as much food as we could from our apartment and we went to the to his parents. And uh, it was just heartbreaking. That was the first step on our way of running. One thing that really struck me during my conversations with Katerina was how Ukrainians really banded together in this very close familial type of way to support each other. We tried to bring food to the soldiers, but luckily we didn't have to give it to them because they were all fed and stocked up by the people who were just located somewhere closer as than we were. Like I mentioned before, I was like in the very dull suburb of the town. It was like um, a very depressing uh, area, but it turned out a life savior. After we moved to the in-laws, um, bombing was becoming more and more frequent. And sometimes the air siren, the airstrike siren would go off like, several times an hour. You were lucky if you didn't have it like for two hours, maybe. Just no announcement that you should seek shelter. One of the things she worried about was the window shattering from an explosion. I had three layers of blanket and a curtain in the in-laws place where we slept. If the glass shatters from the explosion, it flies in small bits. Katerina was also trying to make sure that everyone had enough food. I was looking at the like food being used and I would just skip food sometimes just to have it like reserved for for later for, for someone else, but not for me because I would just manage without any food if I had to. Uh, that was a very much survival mode since then. Ultimately, Katerina's husband had to venture out and get more food. At some point, I asked my husband to go back once again just to pick up some food left there in, in our home, in the apartment in the city center. My husband didn't want me to go. He didn't let me. So he would just go by himself and I would just say goodbye to him, but in, in not not a dramatic way because I wasn't ready for it to become so bad for me, like eternally, to just start saying goodbye like forever, every time now. I wasn't ready for it. I was sure that life would go on and that nothing would happen. Not yet. <laughs> we didn't come so far just to come so far. <laughs> and uh, he went, I think, a couple of times and 
the most horrible part was discovering that there was an airstrike in the area where he was driving by like some half hour before he arrived or after he arrived. Just some half hour, he could have been driving there. Eventually, Katerina joined her husband. Then we went together because we decided to split and just be in different lines. Like, for example, pet food for a cat and another line to get groceries. Like two lines because there were lines for hours and hours. And uh, people were scared that uh, there would be no food at some point. They knew what to be afraid of because that's what's happening in my city now. It's now been one week since the war started and her brother called her again to see if she was going to get further away from the city than just her in-laws who lived on the outskirts. He also called to tell her goodbye. My brother called me again and he asked if we were going to leave the city and he said that my children were so beautiful. He said his goodbye. He called me um, to make his peace with himself, with me, to say how much he loved me and how he admired my nature and how he was sorry for some things he did or didn't do and for the childhood. And, and I cried, feeling that he knew something. He said that we would definitely meet in the future. We would have more children, more happiness, like in the future life. We would be better people. That this whole situation, this war was given for him to grow spiritually and to become wiser man. He said goodbye to everyone he knew. Everyone he felt he wronged in some way. It was one of the most chilling moments in my life. About two hours after that conversation with her brother, there was one of the worst airstrikes in his area. We were in the city center. We heard a fighter jet flying somewhere above. We wouldn't see it. It was cloudy, but we heard this overwhelming roaring around. And after that jet, we heard a massive, horrendous explosion somewhere. And just like one hour before that, we were just driving near that building, which was hit by this air assault. It was a fighter jet that hit a residential building that took 30 something lives, 33 or 37 lives. And you can see those photos on the internet of the building which he saw from his windows. That's when we understood that it was going to be worse and worse. And that day we decided that tomorrow, first thing in the morning, we were going to leave. The next morning, Katerina and her husband took both of their cars into town to try to fill them up with gas for their trip. Their plan was to shove everything into two cars and get as far away from the city center as they could. Katerina's elderly mom would be coming with them. 
riding around town, missiles, like shell everywhere. We wouldn't even know if we could make it back. So every time you leave home, you don't know if you come back. And every time you're back home, you don't know for how long you're safe. You're never safe. After going out to get gas, they had to change their plans. We discovered that uh, there was no gas in gas stations, like no fuel. Everything was shut down. There was no way we could take two cars. So there is just minimal amount of clothes or anything for me and for my husband and for mom. Most of it was for children. They actually had some friends who thought that they should just wait for a bit before they decided to start on the next leg of their journey. We were going to leave, but we were warned the road that we were going to take, the relatively safe way out of the city was uh, blocked by the Russians. And it was some 10, 15 kilometers from the uh, exit out of the city. we were warned by some military friends just to wait it out. We started waiting for just a bit, and then we understood that we don't know for how long we would have to wait. So it was now or never. And we decided to take the risk. You have such a very limited amount of time that you know that while you're on the move, you're in a much more dangerous place than when you're staying put. Katerina said people were just piling into cars. Some people I know would would travel in like in a regular car. Uh, like seven people, two dogs and one cat. Another family was traveling six people and two cats. And I mean uh, like passengers, that's without the driver. Uh, for example, my landlady uh, ran away from her home with like a small bag for her uh, youngest daughter. Her oldest daughter had like uh, a backpack. She packed it herself. But the landlady herself didn't even have a change of clothes because she had five minutes to collect her stuff and just to run. But people were just uh, uh, holding on to their lives. Can't imagine what it's like with a child. Just imagine the psychological trauma of all that. Just running in five minutes away from your home from your friends, from your toys, your your books, your your school, your uh, teachers who you love or subjects you love. It's so, so heartbreaking. As they made their way further away from the city, there were checkpoints and they could hear explosions. At one point, they were told that the Russian army was just 40 kilometers behind them on the same road. And then there are roadblocks like almost on every crossroad and people checking the documents. So a road which would normally take inside the city away would normally take like 10, 15 minutes. It took like 14 minutes because there were checkpoints where you open the trunk of your car, you present your documents. They ask you special questions which gives them information. Every point, like middle point on our way was, you could hear the explosions. They were just happening like half hour before we came or half hour after. Everything was like, it's like we were running from this uh, shelling, but this shelling was catching up on us, but at distance. And uh, while we were 
running for our lives. Someone else was losing theirs. Where did you stay the first night after you left your in-laws? We we stayed at some kind of very, very distant connection of my husband. Uh, so the family of this man who uh, let us stay in his apartment had left before we arrived. So they ran away to Poland before that. It was just one of those first moments when I felt like people are helping. They are just uh, opening their palms, so they are just offering everything they have. The food in the fridge, the, the bed sheets, towels, everything. They just wanted people to help us. So it was a very actually relaxing experience to spend those two nights on another couch, another bed sheet set with the apartment with its own smell, its own like story with its own like uh, um, corners of special memories. There was this room that belonged obviously to the child of the family and there were a lot of toys. It was like letting my child enter the the space, this small world of another child who has fled to Poland. At this apartment, Katerina also found some fresh milk for her two-year-old Leah. And this was a really big deal. In their apartment in the city center, Katerina would intentionally try to keep milk and formula close by in case their building was hit. So at least she'd have something to comfort her girls. And... uh... We found some milk for Leah. So just, I I tried to make the milk last by uh, adding some water to it. She needs it mostly for nights and for naps. I was afraid of just not having the simplest of comforts for her. Katerina's trying to preserve the dry formula just in case. So still, when her husband goes to the store, if he can find fresh milk, she'll ask him to pick it up. He doesn't totally understand it because they do have some formula at home, but he does it anyway. I'm still stashing it away, honestly, from there. (laughs) I'm trying to give her the fresh milk as much as I can. And it's just there just in case if war comes even here where I am and... I'm sure there will be no milk then. And I'm sure that I will have the same struggle. And because I've just experienced this trauma, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that it's just like a psychological trauma of not having milk for a child. I think that's why I'm just not even allowing my husband even to look at it when like I'm saying, we need to get some milk. And he's like, but no, let's just, you know, keep it away away from the eyes so you wouldn't even be tempted to open one of those cans. So that's something I'm still preserving and I will just protect it with my body if it's necessary. (laughs) What a mama does. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) After staying at the apartment for two nights where they found the fresh milk, they were debating on where they should go next. We tried to make a kind of like plan what we should do next. When 
under what circumstances. And it's also surreal because you don't know even what circumstances you're speaking about. You just feel like you need some kind of checkpoints in the future to uh, uh, like work out what's going to happen under any circumstance. And for people who have spent their lives working, being able to count on themselves, count on their financial uh, resource, who can uh, be sure that like they have jobs, they have a home, uh, they can go just go see a doctor or just the kids will go to a school. It's so weird when you just, you're not even sure what you're speaking about when you're speaking about a plan. It's like giving each other a call and just checking where everyone is at and then moving on from there, probably that's the plan because that our still is the same plan for us. After that apartment, they found a church shelter to stay in that was actually run by their pediatrician's father-in-law. They tried to get him to leave, but he couldn't. The other night we spent in the church, we were hosted by my pediatrician's family. I tried to persuade him even to get my car. It didn't have enough fuel. And I don't know how far away it would take him if he took my car. Because even to get to the car is like a life-threatening situation. But it turns out he has no license and he neither does his wife. And he, I don't think he knew how to drive. So then there was like not enough petrol. Then they have this issue with their daughter who is non-neurotypical. And for her, the trip itself could have been such a stress that she might not have coped with it. After four days of Katerina, her husband and her mom, her two-year-old, her six-month-old, traveling for 12 hours a day, they finally reached a place where they could settle. How many nights did it take you to get to where you are now? It seems like you were doing these long, long 10, 12-hour days with your kids. Yeah, it was uh, it was uh, four uh, days of traveling, four days of 12-hour uh, drive, 1,300 kilometers approximately, and... Lots and lots of people who helped. Everywhere we turned to, people were ready to give everything and more. We were prepared to be grateful for just a corner where people wouldn't just touch us and we would just stay there with big cuddle together, all five of us. But we received so much more from the people. The support, the like readiness to go out and just get us anything we needed. The advice, lots of information on the way. When we finally were arriving to this last destination where we are now, like a distant, distant relative of my mom's, um, we spent the first night at neighbor's home. So that was actually the fourth place that we stayed. It was surreal. It was incredible that someone I'm meeting for the first time in my life gives me again gives me the bedroom the bed sheets the blanket the pillow uh, allows me to wash up allows me to wash children's bottles like 
well, how did I deserve all this? Like, oh my God. I was so, so grateful. It was the first night that we didn't hear the sirens and we didn't hear the explosions and we didn't have to keep the windows covered by a blanket. And when uh, we arrived here in this location, and I'm not just going to disclose it just out of safety purposes, I'm sure you understand, we felt not like the usual quiet, but it was like this eerie type of quiet where I'm anticipating that something is going to happen. Anyway, something is going to happen. And um, they, that that next morning we moved finally to this fifth shelter we're now in. So it so happens that the woman, uh, the women of this house also fled for Poland just when the war started. And we're just here with the landlord. And uh, well, I have to tell you that it's, luxury where we live it's absolutely everything you want you have windows open you have a fridge with food you have electricity you have poor internet signal but it's incredible enough for me to be able to record all this and to just pass this information on to you we have water a place to wash up so you can see light from the window that's Something I'm not used to. After Katerina fled the city center with her family, she would constantly reach out to friends and family who she knew were still in the city. My husband hasn't been able to contact his family for about five days now. There is now connection with them and they are still there. Well, when so many people, the people I know, still in Chernigiv and I'm trying to get hold of them daily I just I send them money and I don't know if they're even there let them have this money that I'm giving them from the donations that people are giving me I would rather it stays with them for as long as it takes and I'm not just going to believe that they're dead they can't be and they will use it one day. I hope they will use it one day. They will use it to go get bread. They just need that hope to survive. They need to remember that we remember. That I know they are there. I know that they have regular needs, just like you and I. We don't need much. Do you plan on going back to the city? Is that your hope? I would love to. I would love to. That's what we're looking forward to. Yeah. I, I really, we really want that. That's the plan. I don't associate myself as a person who lost her home. Maybe that's like my uh, period of mourning or maybe I'm still uh, arguing with reality or trying to like get some compromise with what's going on, which is out of my control and my expectation. I don't know what what this but I think it's something that helps me survive and uh, stay optimistic. I I want to believe I'm optimistic. (laughs) I want to come back. We want to return with whoever is left. We just want to to go home and for this to be over and to clean the city together, to, to plant 
the, the flower beds and rebuild the fountains. There were so many of them. Mylia would just run in the park bare feet and um, straight into the fountain in, that was, would just go from the, from the ground. And it had the colorful lights and flower beds and benches around so people would just sit back and just listen to music and watch the children play in the water on a hot like summer night. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> you just cry as much as you need. I know I know how it hurts. I just know that I'll have to endure for a very long time. I can't allow myself to break down. I have to find a reason to be optimistic and I have to concentrate on that. And when I have the luxury of letting it go and just finally feeling that I'm safe, I think that's the time when I'll start to break down more and more and then when that's when I will probably get I don't know depressed or that's that's the way I think it will happen to me but uh, for many people there's not even chance for that because they don't know if they if they make it like every hour is every Meaning every hour is a survival. When you have no water, no electricity, when it's cold, it's winter, no food. When you can't open a window, when you constantly listen to the sound of explosions. The specialists, the people who know, you know, how war, war works and life after war. They say that it will take several years to... Did you say unmine? When you like take the mines and bombs out of the land and it's safe to like walk and live and work and just build houses there. All the bombs and mines and unexploded missiles and shells thrown around the country. Katerina wants to make it clear. No one was oppressing her or her family. No one was oppressing us. We spoke Russian there. We spoke Ukrainian. No one was oppressing us in any way. There was no Nazism or fascism, whatever they call it. We did have issues, like we needed to get our own apartment, like to have our own property, or we needed to go and get my children vaccinated, or we needed to... God, I can't even remember those problems because they are not even problems. So the problems that we had didn't 
depend on what the country decided for us or, be, or not because the country restricted us in any way. It was complete freedom to say what we want, to post what we want, to go on any internet resource we like, to buy or not to buy, to speak language, whichever language we chose. We decided something for ourselves. They're trying to cause as much devastation as possible. They know that what they're targeting, they're hitting it. They're hitting the residential box of flats, the kindergartens, shops, schools, hospitals, maternity hospitals, communal service systems, pipes. They're just causing as much damage, as much pain as possible, just to spread panic and to make Ukrainians disbelieve their own government and just be desperate for whatever solution there is. And uh, even if it, if it costs us a piece of land, Ukrainian land, that people would be so desperate that they would agree to lose, to drop a piece of land just to be able to survive. One of the hardest things about this war is Katerina has a lot of family and people she's close to that actually live in Russia. And they were confused at first and in disbelief about what was going on in Ukraine because they were influenced by Russian state propaganda. And this caused some conflict within their families living on both sides of the border. We used to be extremely friendly before this when uh, there was, the, you know, the Soviet Union and the post-Soviet period, all that. We, all of us, both countries, have merged and grown into each other in such a way that we have families, like, living in, in, two, in both countries. There is the generation of my uncles, their children, who are my cousins, and then there's the their children already, so... They all live in Russia. And similarly, if you look at it from their point of view, their uh, origins come from Ukraine. Not everyone there even believed us at first. So they would just um, insist that what they were saying on their TV, which we now know, and they have also uh, discovered that that was just propaganda. It was the classic KGB-style propaganda that was building up for years and years. And this man who is in charge, this government, has had enough power and enough time to build this up. So it was like a gradually growing, uh, massive information control all over the country. So they were very confused about what's going on. They would hear a totally different story. So at first there were like fights. Like my mom would speak to her brother who lives in Russia, currently does. Both, actually both brothers live in Russia. She has two brothers. And uh, she would argue with them, like, why don't you believe me? This is happening and that is happening. And they would just be completely oblivious to this. But the moment of truth for the families in Russia, when it started to happen on 24th of February, and this is when everything that they may have had doubts before this, completely got dispelled and they just knew the truth that all, all this time the truth was on our side and that they were brainwashed uh, massively. Are your mom and uncle still talking to each other? So 
if what you're saying is if they are friendly, yes, they are. And my uncles are extremely supportive about Ukraine and they are um, truly heartbroken because all their uh, roots, all all their experience in life, like up until the age of like 30 or 40, happened mostly here. And they are now in their 60s. The streets, the apartment, like hospitals, schools, the familiar places, they have built a lot of memories around those uh, areas. And to them, it's a place, it's a homeland still, regardless of where they live. And now they know that there will probably nothing be left of it. So they are pretty much heartbroken. I don't know if as much as us, but definitely they're in a lot of suffering. Outside of her family, another person that she is extremely close to also lives in Russia. My best friend lives in Russia. And yeah, that's completely heartbreaking. She is... uh, um, a very well-connected person in the community. She owns her advertising business and she's a mom to two children. One of them is 10, the other is one. And she named the youngest, the girl, after me because I'm her closest friend. So it's like, you know, a reminder for the rest of her life that her best friend's country was destroyed. Just looking at her daughter, she would she would always see this and she would always remember this drama, this tragedy, this uh, genocide forever. And it's something that she will have to live with. She feels extremely guilty. And she, the moment it started, she apologized for being Russian, that she's ashamed of that. And she said that she she would make peace with my choice if I decided not to be friends with her anymore. Of course, I told her that, well, I've known her since 2008. So, like, half of my life I've known her. We've been best friends ever since. I I told her that, no, that's not something that's going to happen. We'll remain friends. I don't know how, but we'll have to go through this. Like, we've gone through much stuff before this. But, yeah, she was so shocked. Her best friend feels so restricted in what she can say and what she can do to support Katerina during wartime. So just to give you an example of how bad it is, like my friend, my best friend wanted to send me some money because, well, we've lost everything, absolutely. Home, jobs, my my husband has lost a factory which he built, like ground up, all his money. She obviously wanted to support us. She wanted to send us some money and... Uh, she could get up to 15 years in jail for sending money if she could. So um, just like almost quoting my friend's words, she said that you're not allowed to pronounce the word war. You're not allowed to express any emotion or feeling about it because you could be taken to jail. Uh, People are intimidated and... uh, I think that for someone like her, she has two children that she's supporting. Yeah, she also has a husband. They are together supporting their family and they are an amazing family. They are super worried about us 
specifically because they know us in person. It's not just some random people you never met and you have no uh, feelings about. It's this this like sentimental involvement that they have with, with us, with this war and how badly damaged our lives. So uh, they relate to it from a different angle and still they are not choosing to speak. And that's a choice. Even not speaking is a choice. Whatever actually we do is a choice. So they are choosing not to speak because if they do, who would support their children? (laughs) Katerina believes that each Russian soldier also has a choice to make. I hope that they realize that whatever they are doing is honestly their own choice. Whether they hit the target or miss, that was also a choice, right? You could always say that the vision was was poor, that your your hands were frozen and you just you were doing your best to just hit the aim, hit the target, but you couldn't. And that's why you hit a tree or an empty field, for example. When they hit a residential block of flats and people died, that, that was also their choice. It wasn't the commander's order. Ultimately, they get to decide what the rest of their life is going to be. Whether it will be full of regret and I've never killed a person and I have no idea what it feels like, but that must probably be a scar bigger than life for the rest of existence. I just hope that they understand that they don't have to have it. I don't know how many of them are ready to make the choice. I asked Katerina before we spoke if she could think about what she would say if she had the opportunity to speak directly mom to mom with the mother of a Russian soldier. She decided to write it out and here's what she wrote. I did my best. I was trying to be as respectful, as kind, as civilized as possible. So don't judge me too harshly. For now, this city remains the worst bombed place in the whole of Ukraine. Over 90% of buildings are destroyed and not a single one left undamaged. Those buildings weren't empty. People lived there. They were being treated in hospitals, went to schools and kindergartens, were buying groceries in shops, fixing cars and car shops, you know, uh, doing the ordinary stuff common people do. They all have become victims. There was a maternity hospital that was heavily bombarded. Pregnant women were attacked. Have you been pregnant? I mean, the answer is obvious. Your child is pushing buttons that kill other children, women, men. So you were pregnant. Do you remember what it was like for nine months and then in labor? Did you give birth in the ward with doctors or in the basement while the building was crumbling? Do you know that the woman lost her newborn child after that? Do you know it was a man who once was a child who killed her newborn? If your child survives, 
whether he came to this country out of his own will or in somebody's order and against his will, like they keep claiming. So if your child survives, they will have to live with this all their lives. Is this what you wanted for your posterity? If not, it's not too late to stop this. Your children don't have to hit the target. They may miss. They may choose to surrender. They will be treated well. I promise. And while they're choosing to save their souls and our souls, you, with other mothers, could unite. You're afraid to be put to jail, for instance, because you're trying to resist. And that's understandable. But in your country, the victory would be in numbers. They can put 10,000 in jails, but not 100,000. They will just not have enough prisons. So, the best time to act was yesterday, before the children died, before the maternity hospital was attacked, before the newborn child died after it was born, before I saw the picture of a child who had a small note on the cloth that was covering the dead body. The child was 23 days and 20 hours. I've never seen a dead child. I saw. So, the best time to act was before that. The next best time to act is today. Since I recorded this interview with Katerina, her family has moved back to Chernihiv. Katerina's husband cannot leave Ukraine because it's a violation of Ukraine's martial law. Their entire source of income is her husband's factory in Ukraine that builds and installs ventilation and air supply systems. But during wartime, businesses just aren't investing in this type of equipment. Their hope is that things will pick up again once construction and rebuilding starts after the war. Their family can no longer afford their own apartment, so the four of them are sharing a sofa at Katerina's mom's apartment and just taking one day at a time. Being fully aware how um, temporary all is, how temporary we are, I'm aware that I only have today, and surprisingly, I've become a happier person than I was before war. Um, we're so temporary, we might not even have the end of today. I could be sitting here now and then I could be gone. So would everyone I know. Even in the same apartment where we live. So... There is a certain level of worry, but mostly I'm at peace. I know that victory is imminent. We will take back all our land, even the ones that were taken from Ukraine in 2014. And we are going to celebrate victory. And I hope that this will be a victory, not just for this country, but for all the donor countries who so actively participated in um, making our victory come sooner. That kind of peace will probably be 
the one of the best days of my life and many people's lives. I just know that until then we cannot postpone living. We need to um, tend to our needs daily. You know, the basics, just the basics. Be clean, have some food in the stomach, have a roof over our heads, have a place to sleep in. It doesn't matter like what it looks like or if it's spacious or or if it's not enough or if it's not as elegant as one could imagine it should be or if the food that's on the table is not the right food we can make do with the small what we have um we just don't know how long and um and but but yeah um I'm sure it will be okay. I mean, I made my peace. I think I I won the score inside of me already. <laughs> the region where we live is being bombed daily, and sometimes it's 20 rockets and shells. Sometimes it's um, 10. Sometimes it's more. Uh, and... They fly in all directions. Businesses and infrastructures are being destroyed all the time. And um, it's hope that the more they destroy, the less they have left to destroy it with. But it's stressful. Um, stressful for everyone. I'm speaking about the people in general, people citizens of my city. We're not interested in leaving Ukraine because it's just as good a country as any other country out there and every country has its issues. If life one day comes back to how it can be in a post-war scenario and there is a very, very big chance for that, we would stay and we will stay. Um, we we love our people and we would want our children to grow knowing where they come from and to be proud of, of their origins. And just if they would want to go anywhere as their grown-up decision, I would surely support them. But not because they are running from war, but because they are making this choice out of the freedom of choice. So I want them to have that. My family lives off the money that people donate. And yes, it's been dwindling. And from how people are not donating, I can see that they just don't pay as much attention to our problem anymore. Um, I'm not offended. I mean, I understand that everyone has their lives and I just know that before it gets better for us, it will probably get a bit worse. <laughs> and um, yeah.
You can find Katerina at a Ukrainian Mother's Story Facebook page. And again, I'll leave that link in the show notes. Please go check out her page and leave her some words of encouragement and donate to their family if you can. Your support makes the world of difference to this mama right now. If you want to leave Katerina an audio message, go to my website, www.mamaihearyou.com and you'll see a button on the side of the website that says send an audio message. It's really easy. You can just record right from the website. Every single message I get for her, I will forward on right away. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I need your help to help this show get in front of more mama listeners who might benefit from these stories. Please follow, rate, and review the podcast. Go to mamaihearyou.com on whatever device you use to listen to your podcasts and click on the button that says rate this show. That's M-A-M-A-I-H-E-A-R-Y-O-U.com. Also at mamaihearyou.com, there is one of my favorite things. You can record your answer to the fun question of the month, such as, where do all the missing socks go? The answers will be pieced together in upcoming episodes with some of the best answers shared on Mama I Hear You's Instagram page and in the Facebook group. And finally, I would love to hear from you. At the website, you can leave me an audio message about the show or just motherhood in general, as well as fill out a short form if you'd like to share your own motherhood story on the show. Thank you again for listening and I look forward to connecting with you.